the last couple of weeks, we've seen how at the very start of the church, which Acts, the couple chapters in Acts describes, there were certain activities that the people, that first church were committed to. Um, we saw in verse 42, the teaching of the apostles, right? This authoritative truth from God. The fellowship, they were, it was continually devoted to these people. Um, and then, and fellowship we described as like partnership or a unity or a, um, a sharing together. And maybe some of the things that were expressed in that fellowship um, or some of the activities of that were the breaking of bread, maybe a meal that was kind of culminated in, in the Lord's Supper. And the prayers seem to be a part of that. We saw last week in verse 44 and 45, especially their togetherness. That seems to be maybe a, a little bit of a description of their fellowship, how they shared with one another what they had in, whatever they had, they shared with one another. Um, and hopefully we as a church have, can have uh, encouraged similar types of devotions to uh, the Word of God. We do that in this one activity of midweek teaching in other ways, hopefully. Uh, our fellowship meals, kind of maybe the highlight of some of our fellowship, though there's fellowship outside of that. And in those meals, we, we eat together, we take communion together, we pray together. And certainly, in many different ways, we, in general, care for each other and um, serve each other however we can with whatever we have. And uh, just, this is summary, but just to kind of sum up in a couple of words, a way to describe these types of things or these values is truth and love. So just a simple way to remember that. Now, truth and love and some of these things that are described, y'all, as I was looking through this, I began to think, unfortunately, this, um, not unfortunate that I was thinking, <laughs> so I heard somebody chuckle. Uh, but it's unfortunate that I was thinking in this particular way that I thought, you know what, those things, like those, those types of activities, they just seem kind of boring. Um, and surely there's more exciting stuff to be involved with. And I guess I got to thinking, like, we live in a society of spectacle and grandness. Mary Beth and I just went to Dubai, as a lot of you know. And like in Dubai, we saw the tallest building in the world, and we saw the large, we shopped the largest mall in the world. Well, we didn't shop it, it's too expensive, but we went to the largest mall <laughs> in the world, and it's going to be replaced with one three times bigger soon to be the new largest mall in the world. And we saw um, the world's largest gold ring, and we saw an ATM <laughs> literally that dispenses gold bars, okay? Um, just like, not because anybody needs to carry gold bars around, but that's just like, wow, look at what Dubai has produced. Um, and, cupcake ATMs, okay? It's not cupcake. <laughs> that's the real value. That would be valuable. Any gold they have. You can barter with cupcakes. Um, but even, okay, so that's Dubai, and, and it's like, well, that's, that's just, wow, look at what they've accomplished. But then you can look on TV and you, like with America's Got Talent or some of these shows, like it's the most amazing magicians and contortionists and like blacklight theater or whatever. And, um, or you, or the, uh, you like watch YouTube videos, the highlights and you'll see like 
this incredible dog that's befriended a porcupine and they're rolling around in snakes and just like wild, like how this is incredible. And it's just, it's like, what, what is the most amazing thing out there? Um, and I think even in our, in our Christian society, we have kind of our own versions of, of like big astonish, astonishment or big uh, amazing things. Like in Europe, if you've been to Europe, you see these these huge, beautiful churches that are like, you walk in and you're just like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. The gold and the paintings and the, the height of the ceilings and the arches and all this stuff. And it's like, wow, it, it makes you go, wow. And it's not just in the Europe churches, but in like, some of you have been to some like mega church campuses that just are like mind-blowingly amazing and cool. And they have just these incredible multimedia feats that they can accomplish. And I remember in, uh, I won't mention the city, but in a city that I lived in before, uh, there was a neighbor that used to always <laughs> tell Mary Beth and I, as a Christian neighbor, she would always tell us about her church and the amazing things happening in her church. And so we'd always be like, oh cool, you know, tell us about it. And it was always like, this service, you should have seen what they brought in. They had zebras on stage and they had this and that. And there was a 747 that flew overhead and all. I mean, it was all like, this was the most amazing sight I've ever seen. It was grand and big and a spectacle. Um, and it didn't really have anything to do with like the church or, or maturity of the believers. But in this particular case, it was just, wow, it was a, my 15 senses were really awakened in this. Um, and I think that there's even kind of an underlying move, I feel like, in the Western church of, like, hey, we shouldn't, we need to, like, do something adventurous for Jesus, and we need to be a world changer, and don't be satisfied with just the status quo kind of Christianity, but real Christians are radical Christians, and they need to do crazy things, and some of that noted, or is is a good I think backlash to yeah we don't want like just pew warmers and whatever so I'm not saying that's that term is all bad um, but it's it's still this this idea of we we want to be blown away we want to see big things that's the direction of our society that's the direction right or wrong of a lot of church life and in the midst of this culture of spectacle and adventure how might what we read in Acts 2.42 kind of hit us. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Boring, right? Um, like you hear me say, hey, we need to be committed to truth and love. And um, okay, well, yeah, I've heard that before. Or we need to be devoted to God, teaching God's word, learning God's word and the fellowship. It's like, yeah. Okay, that's that's cool. What's your church like? Well, my church, we have this. We take over this huge warehouse and have these earthquake-causing subwoofers and <laughs> use the top musicians in the world. And there's this extravaganza of <coughs> media and everything you can imagine. And well, what do you do? Well, we uh, we kind of go over to somebody's house and we eat and pray together. And <laughs> on Wednesday night, we get together and study the Bible. Teaching and fellowship, I admit, can not sound exciting. Okay. Um, 
so much so that I feel like sometimes the the Western Church anyway, which is just what I'm familiar with, almost feels like it has to fabricate an excitement somehow. Um, I was at another church years ago that one of the leaders in the church was saying, um, we need to we need to do something, have some events to create momentum. I think I've mentioned it before here, but we have to create momentum because some big thing that creates momentum, that'll basically is insinuating um, those, that would bring more numbers in and that would bring the budget back up where it needed to be. And it's just like, I, I imagine that he was thinking, well, just, you know, our preaching of God's word and kind of our fellowship or small groups or whatever isn't, isn't interesting enough to people. It's not exciting enough. That's just not enough. Um, and I want to help us to see um, why I think that those things are enough and why I think we should be excited about the humble, simple activities of the church. And you all know, I'm not like, I'm not the most passionate communicator. So this is actually even more exciting than my vocal inflection is going to demonstrate to you. <laughs> I'm going to do my best. Um, so, um, first of all, I want to just look briefly at, this, at the four activities at least mentioned in verse 42. Can we really say that these things are boring? First, the apostles' teaching. This word of God that's been passed down through the centuries, some of it, it is written by, let's take the apostles, uh, uh, Matthew, John, Peter. Disciples of Jesus, God, Jesus, that guy, dudes that walked around with this guy on earth for a few years are inspired by God to write down some things that God wants to communicate to his people throughout, you know, to be passed along from generation to generation. Uh, other, some other New Testament writers, Jude and James, brothers of Jesus, like half-brother, like blood relatives um, with, with Jesus, write some things to us, and we get to look into this. These things that the Holy Spirit, I believe, miraculously, if you study it, has preserved for us a couple thousand years after they were first communicated. And, y'all, this Bible is where we find life. And in a much deeper way than any other type of speech or communication could give life. We find life in the pages of scripture written by God for us, by a bunch of men, some men that knew Jesus, the God-man, perfectly. I mean, it's it's mind-like. If we ever take, oh, they've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, we're coming on Wednesday night to study the Bible, okay, whatever. Like, let's not, let's get over that feeling of, oh, that's not an exciting thing, because this is pretty dang exciting that we have this word of God to look into. It's pretty special that we have that. The fellowship. This great, like, epic mission that we're on, that, that Jesus puts us on, we're not in it alone. And God's given us this really worldwide team of people who are now he makes us family with. And this family, we share the, the deepest, most foundational passions in life, the passion for the gospel for the, and for the glory of God. 
Um, we, we now share that in this fellowship that God has drawn us into. Um, and I don't think, like, that, that's, that doesn't seem boring if you really get down to it. Or, or part of that fellowship, maybe the breaking of bread, when we take communion together, is it really, like, is it really dry and kind of overused to be reminded of this great news that we have forgiveness of sin eternally, and, and we do this thing to, to remind each other each week we take communion together, the bread and the cup. Like, is there something more exciting that you'd like to be able to share with each other or remind each other about than the fact that we have forgiveness forever found in Christ's prayer? Not only do we get to like read about God and kind of stand at a distance and admire God, but we together, we can approach God, creator of heavens and earth. We can approach God in, in prayer and, and speak with him like this is not boring stuff. This awe or fear-inspiring God, awesome God, we have relationship with him. We're given his word. We have fellowship with his people. We remind each other of his great act in our life, and we, we speak with him. We communicate with him in prayer. It, it's not just, like, boring religious tradition. Like, this is my religion, and so I, I decide to study this holy book, and I try to commit to these principles. That's not what we're talking about. This is life and relationship with God who created everything and is Lord over everything, okay? So just start with that, with those, those things mentioned in verse 42. It's, it's hard if you think about those things in much detail to actually be, be bored with the thought. Um, another thing, in Acts 2.43, uh, the next verse, kind of in between where we looked the last two weeks, um, we see that the type of living that was being displayed by this first church, at the time, it wasn't being received by unbelievers as no big deal. Uh, it says in verse 43, awe came upon every soul. The word awe in 43, almost every other time um, in the New Testament, uh, is, is translated fear. So like it's, it's some intense thing, it's not just Wow, that's neat, but like, whoa, like, ah, fear, that's awesome. Um, so as people heard this message being proclaimed, like Peter proclaims it, a sermon in the beginning of chapter 2, and they see how it's affecting the life of the believers, they were afraid, or, or even, at least they were amazed at it. Now, um, you might look at the, um, the second half of that verse there, um, this creates awe, too. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So you might kind of, in glancing at this passage, you think, well, that's, that's really what they were in awe about, was the, the signs and wonders. And I say, yes, of course, like people were in awe of these apostles who were speaking in languages that they didn't know beforehand, and, and now they're, they're speaking in languages that other people can understand who do speak that language, or they're performing miracles on people who were lame from birth, and now they're getting up and praising God, walking, leaping around, and like, yeah, definitely that creates a sense of awe and fear in people, of course. But, like, if you look at how kind of Luke puts the, the sentence together here, it's not all that, it, he doesn't say many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles, and so awe came upon every soul. Awe came upon every soul in the midst of all of these things, the devotion to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, um, the miracles from the apostles, and what he talks about in verse 44 and 45, they're selling their possessions. All of these things 
together, it seems, are causing this awe. And if you really, if you like look at these uh, six verses, 42 to 47, like the bulk of, of the time that Luke spends in the summary of the early church is kind of in 44 and 45, what we talked about last week, this togetherness that involves sharing what they had with one another. So I don't want to like discount the signs and wonders that I'm sure were amazing and caused awe, but at, there was at least, a, you could say, looking at the text, an equal amazement with, with everything else going on. It's these, it involves these simple church activities that we see the, the passage bookend in verse 41 and 47 with the Lord adding to the number, adding to their numbers those who are being saved. So this bold proclamation of the gospel, of the resurrection of Jesus that they just seen, and the fellowship of the believers, which was expressed in this extreme selflessness with one another, was causing an unbelieving world to be amazed. And this is something that this the unbelieving world of the first century, they were, they, they were amazed with. So I think that you could say that wouldn't it be fascinating to the world if we had the same types of devotions? I think maybe so. I don't think we should think, oh, this is, this is no big deal, the way that we're living, or the things that we're involved with. When I see you all giving up things that, you, that belong to you, your rights, your time, or your money for the sake of other people in our fellowship here, like that's amazing to me. And I think our community is amazed when the gospel that we proclaim is matched by the lifestyle, our lifestyles that say, hey, there's, there's nothing more important than this gospel truth, and I'm willing to like, put my money where my mouth is and, and give up whatever it is for the sake of that truth. So it's not, y'all, it's not, oh, we go over to somebody's house and we eat and we pray and we study the Bible on Wednesdays and when somebody has a need, we try to meet the need. Like, It's so much more than that. And that in and of itself, those things, if we are committed to those things, those are unusual and they're countercultural. And I'd say they're supernatural, but I think I have to be reminded of that. So, if so far, maybe if it doesn't seem like a a big deal, a little boring about what's going on here. If, if like learning from people who actually knew and walked with Jesus is not a big deal, and if partnering with people around the world in this this epic mission and having sharing the same purpose and family with them isn't a big deal, and if talking um, about the eternal forgiveness of sin that we have in Christ as we take communion isn't a big deal, or if talking to God Himself isn't a big enough deal. Or the fact that early on in, in the first century, people were amazed by these things that were going on isn't a big deal. Maybe I can share with you a final thing that might give us reason to be continually devoted to uh, these types of things. Um, so Acts 2.47, the, the end of this little chunk, says this. The, the last portion of that verse. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. If nothing else would fire us up to value some of the same things that the early church valued, 
then I hope it will be this, that in the midst of these devotions, the Lord saves. It's, it's this type of living that leads to a, a revival here. And I think one of the most exciting things that we can see or, or witness is somebody finding salvation in Christ. He says those who are being saved, think about that word, they're being saved. This, it, it's, it's not just, oh, that's cool, they've kind of joined up with our fellowship, which that is cool, but they're saved. Like, saved means that there was something desperately wrong and broken in their life, and they were rescued out of that, and the penalty of that that we know as hell. And it, it wasn't just like, oh, somebody saved their life, like they were saved out of a fire or something, but they were saved from, from death for eternity into eternal life mm -hmm. forever. Yeah. That's not boring. <laughs> and this section, like I said, it's surrounded by the Lord adding to their number those who are being saved. I think it's probably not by mistake that what Luke records here is in chapter 2, first is this, this long sermon of Peter, this proclaimed word, this powerful word of God by the apostle Peter, and Luke mentions that at the end of that, in verse 41, he says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then it goes on to describe some of their activities, specifically how they were together and had all things in common, and they were attending the temple together and sharing food in their homes. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. After a powerful proclamation of truth, Luke mentions that God added to their numbers after a powerful proclamation or, or demonstration of fellowship, of love. Luke mentions that God adds to their numbers. So I think that a significant thing that we can learn from this passage is that devotion to even simple activities of the faith are a powerful witness to the truth of Christianity. Um, John Polhill says uh, Luke's summaries, this section right here, present an ideal for the Christian community, which it must always strive for, constantly return to, and discover anew, if it is to have the unity of spirit and purpose essential for an effective witness. It's not just for our sake that we have these cool things. We study the apostles' teaching and participate in the fellowship, but it's for our, our effective witness. Um, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis say this, they say, our conviction is that Christians are called to dual fidelity or faithfulness. Fidelity to, the, one, the core content of the gospel, which you could say the apostles' teaching, accompanied by fidelity or faithfulness to the primary context of believing community. You could say the fellowship. Then they say, to ignore or minimize either is not merely to hamstring the task of evangelism, it is effectively to deconstruct it. They're saying we, we hamstring or deconstruct evangelism when we neglect to teach the word of God or when we neglect the fellowship together. Truth and love. It's not just what we should be about as a church for our own health and to keep us maturing in the faith, but it's how the world will be convinced about the reality of the gospel. Um, it probably, to y'all... If you're like me, it, it makes sense that people are people's being saved involves hearing and understanding the truth of the gospel, the content of the gospel, right? Um, like our evangelism has to be, it, it's 
some of it is a spoken word, right? How will they hear unless someone is preaching? Like there's a communication that has to take place. But I'm not quite as sure if it's easy to see how how our love for one another, how our fellowship, um, how that matters so much to people being added to our numbers, being saved specifically, not just adding more Christians, but actually people being saved and added. So I want to look at, um, just end by looking at a passage where Jesus himself kind of says something very similar about the unity and oneness of believers and um, what the effect of that is. So turn to John 17. If you have a Bible, it, actually turn there. I'm going to spend just a, a couple minutes looking at this. John 17. Um, you might know this is uh, it's known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, this is just before Jesus is crucified. Okay? Um, he is he is you could kind of say this is some of Jesus' last will and testament, if you will. Um, it's one of the last things, at least we know of, that he said before going to Gethsemane where he's going to be arrested and, and then crucified soon after. So we're leading up to the crucifixion, this hinge of all history and all future, like this, this critical uh, um, crux of all time. Jesus is about to be arrested. And Jesus says, um, at the beginning of his prayer to the Father, he says, the hour has come. And so I can imagine if the disciples are, are hearing this, this is like, they, they don't know the fullness of what's about to happen, but they, they know something <coughs> significant is happening. Jesus has been talking about this hour, and finally this hour has come. And Jesus is praying to the Father. And so I would think that they're like, listen, well, what's he, what's he going to talk about? What's he going to pray about? And I think we should be like, what's, what's Jesus? What's What's the last thing or one of the last things on, on Jesus' mind as he's about to go to the cross? Well, we won't go over the whole prayer. Uh, first of all, in the first few verses, he prays kind of for himself and what's about to happen. Uh, then he prays for the disciples, specifically, that he's been ministering with. And then, starting in verse 20, he prays for us. Have you seen that before? Say your name in there. Uh, I wrote mine in there. No. Uh, look what it says in verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask, he's talking to the Father, Frank. I do not ask for these only, the disciples we've just been talking about, but also I'm asking for those who will believe in me through their word. Through the disciples' word, there's those that will believe in me. Well, who is that? Eventually, it gets down to us, okay? I mean, maybe that's, it's, we're generations later, but this word is being passed down over time. So at this most crucial time in history, moments before the cross, Jesus, in a prayer for all those who would believe as a result of the word of the apostles, what's he pray for us? Verse 21, he prays that they, us, may all be one. Who would be one? The, the believers that we would be one. Of all the things that like could be on Jesus' mind, his prayer involves the unity of believers. And what he means by one is not, God, I pray that all the believers will get along with each other and kind of put up with each other and be cordial with each other and do some tasks together whenever they can and try to go to the same church service and 
Now, he describes what one is like in verse 21. He says that they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Jesus describes the oneness that we are to have just as the relationship between Jesus and the Father, this most intimate, close-knit relationship you could possibly have, the Trinitarian relationship that even a theologian can't even explain how that actually, how that works, that there could be three persons who are actually wrapped up into one, but that's what the type of oneness that Jesus is praying for. It's distinct people, yes, but one person. Do you all feel that with each other? That kind of oneness? You're all looking around. <laughs> and it, he, again, he's not talking about maybe some kind of transcendental life. I kind of feel this vague unity with people and um, spiritually I feel it. Practically we don't get along, but deep down I know that we love each other. But it's, it's a tangible, we'll see in a minute, it's a real life unity that, that people can see that expresses something supernatural. Um, before we get to that, he, and this, you could spend a long time, obviously, in this passage, but we won't, but he, he says how the oneness will be accomplished, how, how that far-fetched oneness is even possible. Uh, in, in verse 23, he even says, that they may be perfectly one. Like, how, how is that even possible? Well, in verse 21, he says, continuing to pray, that they also may be in us. And just, I think a key part of applying the fellowship is this, that um, we're not going to be one as the Son and Father are one, perfectly united, if we set our focus primarily on getting along with each other. It's only when we're one in Christ and he in us that we'll truly be one with each other, okay? Our unity with each other won't work apart from our unity with God as much as we try at it. Maybe you've tried that before. So Jesus prays that they would be one Father as us and that they would be one in us because we can only be one as the Father and Son if we're one in the Father and Son. Does that make sense? If we're in Christ, that's where we find our unity, not in us trying to do it apart from Him. And just a, a note that we could talk about another time being one, and have talked about some, what does being one in the Father and Son look like? Well, I think Jesus describes it a little bit in chapter 15. When he talks about, um, I am the vine, you are the branches, and that we should abide in Christ Right after that, talk about abiding in me. He says, love one another as I have loved you. I think we can only love each other as he's loved us if we're abiding in him. I think it's all kind of in order. So we can't love one another. We can't have true fellowship with one another. We can't have togetherness unless we're doing so with the Lord. And so here's kind of what I want to get at why I bring up John 17. Why does Jesus pray for our unity? Like, why might our noticeable display of being together, of our fellowship, you could say, why would that be important? So, if you're, like, turn to John 17 if you're not there, and I want to read out loud together, especially if you have the ESV, we'll read the same words. The end of verse 21, right after it says, uh, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us. Now, why does Jesus desire our unity? Read it out loud with me. 
so that the world may believe that you sent me. Forgive. Do you see how unity and fellowship and evangelism are partners? In verse 23, he says to the Father, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one again, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Y'all, our oneness or our togetherness is an authentication to the world or a proof to the world that Jesus is from God and that God loves us. I want to just like think about the implications of that for a second. Our, our oneness is a, an authentication to the world that Jesus is from God and that God loves us. That has massive implications and I think speaks to the importance of our true fellowship with one another. I'll read a couple of um, a couple more quotes here about this. Matthew Henry says, Christ here shows the good fruit of the church's oneness. He says, it will be an evidence of the truth of Christianity and a means of bringing many to embrace it. I love what he says here. It will recommend Christianity to the world. Our oneness recommends Christianity to the world. Um, Robert Mounts says, kind of on the other hand, church divisions maybe you've experienced, result in great injury to the cause of Christ. They waste time, they absorb energy, they give the world, listen, they give the world a ready-made excuse for unbelief. Um, Leon Morris says, the unity of believers will be explicable to the world only on the basis of divine love. It will transcend all human unity. Our unity shows that Christians themselves have been caught up into the love of the Father for the Son, secure and content and fulfilled because loved by the Almighty himself with the very same love he reserves for his son. And he says, it is hard to imagine a more compelling evangelistic appeal. The world is not impressed at the deepest level by spectacle Christianity. What's really going to blow their minds is our fellowship with one another, our love expressed towards one another, and the foundation that's based upon the truth of God's word. I'll just end by reading this passage here again that we've been looking at. So Peter, in Acts 2, preaches a sermon, um, and it goes on to say in verse 40 of Acts 2, and with many other words, so this is declared truth, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. It's the apostles' teaching, Peter the Apostle. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added about 3,000 souls that day. And now listen to just the simple, beautiful, humble activity of the church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, we talked about that last week, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, 
attending the temple together or of one mind, that word means, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous, or glad and simple, humble, it's another way to translate it, hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's simple, boring, amazing, and I pray that it would be so with us. Um, I'd like to pray that right now. Father, we can be uh, taken and impressed by uh, so many different things. Um, but Lord, we are most impressed with the amazing truth of the gospel and most amazed that a perfect God would... Um, would sacrifice his son and pour the judgment that we deserved on his son to give us life. Uh, that's that's amazing. That's the most amazing thing. I pray that we'd never lose the, the wonder, the awe of that. And I pray that our community, Lord, would be one that talks about that the gospel truth often and that it doesn't grow uh, into just some boring verbiage that we um, that we spill through every week, but God, that we would truly be amazed by your love and that that gospel would transform our lives, that we would love each other in a way that's not explainable except that we are, we are together in you. Mm-hmm. And may uh, the world around us here in Los Angeles and may our, our families and friends maybe even not close by, I pray that they would see a glimpse of that and that it would be a um, a powerful witness to change lives because of the gospel and that the result would be that you then would add to uh, the numbers of your church, those who are being saved. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.